we stand forgiven before the cross. And with that in mind, open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Last week, we began looking at the first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Jesus would appear first to Mary Magdalene. And his message to her was one of victory, triumph, and comfort. Jesus announced that he is ascending to the Father. Jesus announces a, a message of reconciliation with God. A message of adoption into God's family. Jesus sends Mary Magdalene to give this message to the disciples, to the apostles, that relationships have changed. Because of Jesus' victory at Calvary, we can now be loved and adopted and brought into God's family. Look again at verse 17. John chapter 20, verse 17. Here Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Brothers and sisters, because of the work of Jesus Christ, God is your Father. Christ is your brother. Fellow believers are your spiritual family. Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene and commissions her to go and bring this announcement to the disciples. Relationships have changed. But where will Jesus go next? Who will he appear to now in this second post-resurrection appearance? And remember what we said last week. Jesus appears to specific individuals or to specific groups of individuals for specific purposes. These are not random. These are not haphazard as Jesus appears to people. As we look at these appearances, we should be asking ourselves the questions, what is the purpose of this appearance? What is Jesus? Jesus trying to teach or show his disciples and us. Having appeared to Mary Magdalene, Jesus now will reveal himself to his disciples minus Thomas. Thomas would not be with the disciples when Jesus would first appear to them. And that is very significant But that is next week's message. And so for this morning, direct your attention again to John chapter 20 and let us read the verses before us again, beginning in verse 19. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and our Father, we praise you for the peace that we have through Jesus Christ. 
Because of Him, we are not your enemies. Because of Christ, we have been reconciled to you, adopted into your family. Father, as we look closely at these verses, we pray for your help. We pray that by the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, you would give us hearts and minds to know and to love the truth so that we may respond in joy, in faith, in obedience to what Jesus says here. Do this for our joy and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. As we consider the verses before us, there are at least five things we want to see and observe and notice this morning. They are firstly, the disciples' feelings of fear. Then secondly, Jesus' two proclamations of peace. Then C, Jesus' gracious invitation to intimacy. Number four, the disciples' right response of rejoicing. And then lastly, Jesus' mandate to continue his mission. Firstly, notice A on your outline, the disciples' feelings of fear. As Jesus would appear to his disciples, John makes it abundantly clear that he is entering into an atmosphere of fear. Look again at verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now this is important for us to note because it helps us understand the state of mind of the disciples. They are in hiding. They are afraid. They are not yet understanding the full reality of the resurrection. They do not understand the implications of of Jesus's rising from the grave. Now even though Peter and John had gone, they had seen the empty tomb, even though by this time the disciples would have talked with Mary Magdalene and would have heard the message from her, they are still fearful. They are still afraid. And I think this reminds us of an important truth. Please note this on your outline. Knowledge alone is not enough. Evidence alone is not enough. We need the power of God. We need the Spirit of God at work in us if there is to be any lasting, meaningful change and growth. Here, the disciples are hiding for fear of the Jews. The disciples have convinced themselves that they are dead meat. The Jewish leaders have have killed Jesus and now they're probably going to be gunning for them too. And in all fairness, they're probably right. The disciples are probably right. According to Matthew 28, 13, the Jewish leaders had told the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb to lie and to say that the disciples had come and had stolen away the body of Jesus. The Jewish leaders were were probably making plans to go after the disciples. It makes sense. They hated Jesus. Therefore, they would hate those who would follow Jesus. We're also told in verse 19 that the door is locked. The doors are locked where where the disciples are they are fearful they are hiding with the doors locked and this is an important detail because it will underscore the miraculous nature of what Jesus is about to do as he miraculously and and suddenly appears to them but the point is here the disciples are fearful they are hiding they are presently ill-equipped They are presently unprepared to fulfill the mission that Jesus will entrust to them. And again, 
They had heard the testimony of Mary Magdalene. They had heard the message that, that Jesus had given to her, Peter and John. They, they had seen the empty tomb and yet they are hiding. Again, knowledge is not enough. Evidence alone is not enough. They need the power of God, the Spirit of God in their lives to grow them, to mature them, to become the men that God wants them to be. And brothers and sisters, it is the same for us. Left to ourselves, we are a frightful mess. We are a fearful, cowardly bunch who are in our sinfulness and depravity. We are inclined to be resistant to God. We are inclined to be resistant to the one who loves us and who is working all things together for our good. And this underscores our need for the grace of God, for the Spirit of God at work in our lives. This is why we, we praise God for verses like 2 Timothy 1.7 that speaks of the transformation that God accomplishes in the hearts and minds of His people. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It is a reminder to us of our need, our constant need of God's grace, of Christ's presence of the gift of the Holy Spirit that we would become who God wants us to be. So here at the outset of these verses, we see the disciples' feelings of fear. Next, we see B on your outline, Jesus' two proclamations of peace. Jesus' two proclamations of peace. Looking at verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And then jump ahead to verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. This is so good. Jesus is so kind. He is so gracious. He is so sympathetic to them. Please note this on your outline. Jesus comes to us in our fear and proclaims peace. Jesus does not show up to scold the disciples. Jesus does not appear to them to mock them for their fear. Jesus does not appear to them that he might stick his finger in their face and say, no, look here, you have been an embarrassment to me and you are fearful and you are hiding and I need you to get your act together and then maybe once you do, then we can talk about peace No, Jesus appears to them proclaiming and announcing peace. And this is good news. Jesus comes to us in our fear, in our weakness, and he gives grace. And he reveals and makes known his peace and goodness to us. Psalm 56.3 says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Notice that the psalmist says, when I am afraid, not if I am afraid. When I am afraid, brothers and sisters, when we are afraid, let us learn to look to Christ, who is our peace. Let us look to our Father, who is our rock, who is our refuge, who is our safety. Jesus, by virtue of his redeeming work, has purchased and accomplished 
peace for us. And so Jesus comes proclaiming peace. But this raises a very obvious question. Why does Jesus feel the need to proclaim peace twice to to the disciples? Isn't once enough? Isn't it sufficient for Jesus to come and to proclaim peace once to them? Why does he do it twice? Well, first, I I believe uh, the disciples may be thinking that if Jesus is alive, he will most certainly be angry with them. They have failed him yet again. They have run and fled and they are fearful and perhaps they expect to find Jesus coming with a whip and a sharp rebuke, especially for Peter. Peter, who had denied him three times, and yet here Jesus comes in grace and mercy, proclaiming peace. Or perhaps Jesus proclaims peace to them two times because he knows that in their fear, this is the message that they desperately need to hear. Perhaps they need to know that, yes, they are fearful, but they don't need to persist in their fear because Jesus has risen. Jesus is alive. He has been victorious over sin and death. Their Lord, their King lives. You need not remain in fear. Or perhaps Jesus emphasizes this message of peace because he wants to drive home The reality of what his life, death, burial, and resurrection has accomplished. Remember that back in John chapter 14, Jesus had promised them peace. In John 14 verse 27, Jesus had said to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And now Jesus shows up. Proclaiming peace. Because by virtue of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he has purchased peace for them. That they may know the peace of God. And brothers and sisters, you know, this is what makes the gospel such good news. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 underscores this very fact. It says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Think of it. The only person in the universe who truly matters, almighty God himself, you are at peace with through Jesus Christ. He has accomplished this for you. In Ephesians 6.15, the Apostle Paul calls the gospel the gospel of peace. Because of Christ, we are at peace with God. And from this position of peace, from this firm foundation of peace with God, we can then tenaciously love one another. We can strive to be at peace with one another. We can hold our ground as peacemakers, as those who speak and proclaim what is true of Christ, as those who love and serve others for the glory of Christ, we can call others to find peace and life in Christ. So yes, Jesus comes and proclaims peace twice to his fearful disciples. Next, see on your outline, please notice now Jesus' gracious invitation to intimacy. In verse 20, we read this, when, when he had said this, 
he showed them his hands and his side. What a strange thing to do. Why, why does Jesus do this? And why does John bother to record it? Why does Jesus invite them to come close to him to see his hands, to see his side, to see the scars from, from his crucifixion? Obviously, I think we would, we would naturally think, well, Jesus wants them to know that it is really him. He was crucified. He died. He was buried, but he is risen. The disciples would have been well familiar with the hands of Jesus. They would have seen his hands many times. They would have seen these hands perform miracles. They would have seen these hands touch the crippled and the lame and, 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 and those with, 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 with leprosy. They would have been well familiar with the hands of Jesus, but now they are invited to come close and to see these hands and the scars that they bear. To see the side of Jesus and the scar that is there. So obviously Jesus wants them to know that it is truly him, but I think there's something else going on here. Jesus has just proclaimed peace to them and now he shows them the marks and the scars of his crucifixion, helping them to understand that peace has been achieved through him, through his death on the cross, through his substitutionary work and now his resurrection. Please note this on your outline. Jesus shows them that he is the reason for their peace with God. When you buy something from from the store, you usually get a receipt of some kind. And that receipt serves as a proof of purchase. You have bought it and you can prove it because you have a receipt with your, maybe your name, your credit card number. If you paid cash, it's still there. You have some kind of receipt to show that you have purchased this item. I think we could say perhaps that Jesus's scars here serve as something of a proof of purchase. Jesus has died to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to God. And these scars prove it. They testify to Jesus' atoning work. So the disciples minus Thomas would now know that this is the risen Lord. This is Jesus. He was crucified, but now he lives. He is not an imposter. He is the real deal. And they could see him and see his hands and touch him. And perhaps the Apostle John was reflecting on this scene many years later when he would write in that little letter known as First John Chapter 1, verse 1, where he would say, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning that one day, you too will look upon the resurrected Christ. One day, you too will see the hands and the scars, and the side that marks and testifies to his saving, to his redemptive work. And brothers and sisters, we will together marvel at his grace and his love for us. Jesus, indeed, invites the disciples to come close 
to see that it is him. And quite understandably, this now brings us to our next point, D on your outline, the disciples' right response of rejoicing. Look again at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And to that we say, I hope so. I mean, for heaven's sakes, is there another response to seeing the resurrected Christ coming to you to proclaim peace to you based upon his saving work? Now, brothers and sisters, we should probably pause here for a moment, for a moment of silence to remember and to commemorate the first thing that the disciples have done right in a long time. This is the first thing that they have gotten right in a long time. They show us the right response to the resurrected Christ. They show us the right response to his proclamation of peace, and that is joy and gladness. They were joyful. They were glad when they saw the Lord. And listen, brothers and sisters, we ought to live each and every day with joy and gladness because we know that Jesus lives. He lives today. He rules and reigns, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our faithful, sympathetic high priest. All things are working together for our good and for his glory. So, yes, we should rejoice. We can understand the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. And again, I say rejoice. That's not what he says. And he doesn't say, Rejoice in the Lord on Fridays because the weekend is come. And he doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord when you get a promotion at work. And he doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord only when you get an A on your report card and your parents are pleased. And he doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord when you get a fresh new sheet of Culver's coupons in the mail. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord when everybody likes you and pats you on the back and gives you a trophy or a plaque for you to put on your wall. Then rejoice in the Lord. No, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We can always rejoice because Jesus always lives. He has conquered sin and death. He has given us peace with God. He has given us the gift of eternal life. It is interesting to think years later when the Apostle John was, was, was an old man exiled to the island of Patmos, he would again see the resurrected, glorified Christ. And once again, Jesus would speak to him and proclaim to him a message of peace, a message of peace that should elicit from us joy and gladness. In Revelation 1.17, uh, John describes him seeing the resurrected, glorified Christ. And John writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Brothers and sisters, this is who Jesus is. He is the living one. He is alive forevermore. The one who holds the keys of death and Hades. The one who has the power of life and death. And what does this living one say to John who falls at his feet? Fear not. Fear not. Because of this joy and gladness is the only right response to the resurrected Christ who comes proclaiming peace. Joy and gladness can and should mark our lives as well. Lastly, E on your outline, we need to consider Jesus' mandate to continue his mission. Jesus' mandate to continue his mission. Look again at verses 21 to 23. These are perhaps, uh, upon first reading, perplexing verses, but as we walk through them, as we look at them in context, I, is my prayer and my hope that they will become abundantly clear to us. Look again at verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This encounter with Jesus would define the disciples' life and ministry and mission moving forward. And brothers and sisters, there's a sense in which it should define our life and ministry and mission moving forward. Many theologians and commentators have said that these verses are like John's version of the Great Commission. And I would agree with that. Here, John records Jesus' words instructing his disciples about their upcoming mission as they go out into the world proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the, the good news that Jesus has conquered sin and death. Now, it's interesting to note that that as the Holy Spirit inspired the various gospel writers, as they wrote the Great Commission, as they wrote about the mission of the church, they seem to emphasize different things. They seem to emphasize different aspects of the truth that we need to understand, that we need to wrestle with, that we need to come to grips with. For instance, listen to Matthew 28, verse 18. These are very well familiar verses to you. This is very commonly known as the Great Commission. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Please note this on your outline. Here, Matthew is is emphasizing the authority, the enduring presence of Christ with his followers. Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus makes it known he possesses all authority. He commissions his people to now go out proclaiming his message, making disciples. And Jesus is abundantly clear he will never abandon us. He will never abandon us as we go to fulfill his work, his mission here on earth. Jesus will be victorious. He will work through his people, in his people. He will empower his people. And the one who possesses all authority will be victorious. 
Listen to Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Please note this on your outline. Here Mark is emphasizing the two possible responses, belief or unbelief, to the gospel. The gospel will be proclaimed. And it will either be believed, it will be received, or it will be rejected. Those who believe the gospel, they will be saved. They will be at peace with God. They will experience and possess the gift of eternal life. But those who reject the gospel, those who refuse to come to Christ, will be Condemned, they will ultimately stand guilty before a holy God and they will face the wrath of God against their sin. As here, as Jesus explains things, there, there is no third option. Either you will trust and believe the Lord Jesus Christ or you will not. Either you will turn from your sins in repentance and faith or you will not. And here Mark emphasizes these two very different responses to the gospel. Now listen to Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. It says, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high please note this on your outline Luke here in the gospel of Luke emphasizes how the gospel fulfills Old Testament prophecy Luke also emphasizes here the clear necessity of the Holy Spirit's power and enablement Jesus reminds his disciples here in Luke 24 that Moses pointed to him. The prophets looked forward to his day. The psalmists anticipated the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And this is the good news as Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament promises are now fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this good news cannot rightly be proclaimed or believed without the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear in our natural sinfulness, in our deadness. We are incapable of reasoning ourselves back to life. We are incapable of reasoning ourselves to true faith in the gospel and in our natural weakness and our natural selfishness and cowardice. We are not capable of, of representing Christ like we should, of proclaiming the gospel message as we ought to. We are in constant need 
of the Holy Spirit's power and conviction in our lives. And Luke helps us see that. Listen now to Acts chapter 1, verse 18. This again is Luke writing, but he's now writing, obviously, here in the book of Acts. Here, he records the words of Jesus, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Noted on your outline, here Luke, in Acts, emphasizes again the Spirit's work and God's plan for the spread of the gospel. God's plan was for the gospel to to begin to spread out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into then the rest of the world, to cover the planet, to go to every tribe and nation and people and language. And this is still happening as believers go throughout the globe to every people group to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So that is is Matthew, Mark, Luke, but what about John? What is John's emphasis? What is his point here in the verses before us? Please note this on your outline. John emphasizes our link, our unity with Jesus in continuing his mission. Jesus says in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. In Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene, the message was, relationships have changed. And now this second post-resurrection appearance to the disciples, the message is this, continue my mission. Continue my mission as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is wonderful news. This is exciting news. This means that we don't have to try and figure out the agenda, the purpose for our life and for our ministry. Jesus has already done that. Please note this on your outline. Jesus has given us his peace, his power, his presence, his spirit and his mission. Jesus has entrusted to us his mission and he will enable us and empower us to continue his work. See, this is so important because if we wrongly think, If we wrongly believe that this is our life, this is my life, this is my life, this is my ministry, this is, this is my life, I have the right, I have the, I have the ability to decide whatever I want to do, I get the right to set the agenda, then listen, brothers and sisters, if we live that way, we will be so prone to quit. We will be so prone to just walk away when things don't go our way. When we don't see the success that maybe we think we ought to have. But if we understand that our life, our mission, our ministry is about Jesus' work, His purposes, His goals, His objectives, then there's no quitting. There is no turning back. This is His mission, His ministry that He has called us to and He will be victorious in and through his people. And so in, in closing, I want to simply ask and answer four simple questions. And it's this, who is sent? Number two, where are we sent? Question number three, how are we sent? Question number four, why are we sent? 
Four questions. Firstly, who is sent? And please note the answer on your outline. Let me give you the answer, then I want to try to prove it to you. Who is sent? The answer is this. Everyone who belongs to Christ. Everyone who belongs to Christ. We are included in this sending. Listen, this sending cannot be restricted merely to the disciples, uh, to the 11 disciples, because Thomas is not even present to hear it. So are we to believe that Thomas is excluded from this commissioning, from this sending, simply because he's not here uh, in this moment to hear it from the resurrected Christ? Not only that, in Luke 24, verse 33, Luke clearly states that there are other believers, there are other disciples, there are other followers of Christ that are gathered with the apostles, with the disciples in this room at this time. It is only reasonable as we look at the scope of the New Testament, as we look at the other commands and and, and the other exhortations to go out that we understand we are included in this. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ wherever he may take us, who is sent everyone who belongs to Christ, is sent to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim his message of forgiveness in his name. Question number two, where are we sent? Where are we sent? Verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Where are we supposed to go? The answer is this, the same place Jesus went. The same place that Jesus went. Now I know that doesn't really answer the question. We'll, we'll get there in just a moment. But remember what Jesus said back in his high priestly prayer. In John 17 verse 18, Jesus said to the Father, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Brothers and sisters, to put it quite simply, we are sent into the world. We are sent into the darkness to bring the light, the light of the gospel, the light of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done in conquering sin and death. Listen, when Jesus came into the world, he got his hands dirty. And we'll have to do the same. When Jesus came into this world, he loved and served and spoke with all kinds of people. Jesus sacrificed to be with those who needed him. And we'll have to do the same. When Jesus came into this world... He was hated by some. He was mocked by others. He was ridiculed by others. He experienced persecution. And brothers and sisters, we should expect the same. We have been called to follow Jesus, to continue his mission of bringing light to darkness. Listen, Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth, not its sugar. We are called to be the salt of the earth. Salt is a preserving agent. We are called to be his light. Light is a revealing agent. We cannot do this if we hide ourselves, if we ignore those who are in need right around us. Please note it on your outline. Where are we sent? Answer, we are sent to bring light to darkness. We are sent to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those in need. And listen, brothers and sisters, I, I want to tell you this morning, I am not, I am not good at this. I am not naturally good at this. I stink at loving people. 
That is not my natural inclination is to, as Paul talked about in Philippians 2, to consider others as more important than yourselves. That is not my natural bent. That is not the way that I am prone to go. I, I have been cowardly and fearful and self-centered more times than I can count. Now, if that is true of you, like it is true of me, then you're going to need to hear the answer to these next two questions because it is vital for people like us. Question number three, how are we sent? How are we sent? Here's the answer. Please note it on your outline. We are sent with all necessary power. We are sent with all necessary power. Christ sends us. He equips us with his presence, with his power as given in the Holy Spirit. This is the meaning of verse 22, where it says, When Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them in anticipation of what was to come, of what is recorded in Acts chapter 2, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes on them to indicate, to reiterate to them that the Holy Spirit comes from him. Just as God breathed life into Adam in the Garden of Eden, so Jesus breathes life and power into his disciples. Just as the Holy Spirit would empower Jesus and would testify to the truthfulness of Jesus, of his life and message, so the Spirit will give life. He will open eyes. He will open hearts to be receptive to the gospel. And we see this repeated again and again and again throughout the book of Acts and throughout Christian history, that the Spirit is alive and He is at work to open hearts and minds to believe the gospel. How are we sent? We are sent with all necessary power. Last question, question number four, why are we sent? For what purpose? Here's the answer. Please note it on your outline, then we'll unpack it. To proclaim forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We are sent to proclaim forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Brothers and sisters, please do not misunderstand Jesus' words here. This verse does not mean that we just arbitrarily walk around like in a game of duck-duck-goose saying, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Nah, not forgiven. That, that's crazy. That is silly to think that in light of all that we have read just a few moments ago from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and in the book of Acts about this proclamation of forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. No, when you consider this verse, along with all the other explanations of the Great Commission that we just looked at, when you compare Scripture with Scripture, then you understand we are sent to proclaim the good news 
news concerning Jesus. And that good news is that sinners can be forgiven and reconciled to God, adopted into His family through the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. We are sent to declare God's forgiveness to anyone and everyone who will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That is our work. That what makes our work distinctly Christian. We are to love the world. We are to go into the world. We are to make the gospel known. And as the Spirit moves and works, and as He opens people's hearts and minds, as they respond in faith and repentance to the gospel, and when they ask us, what does this mean? Does this mean that I am forgiven? Does this mean that I am reconciled to God? What do we say to them? I hope so. Beats me. I guess we'll find out when you die. Is that the message that we have been sent to proclaim? Does that reflect the certainty of Jesus' words here in verse 23? This is what Christ means when He says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. When someone repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our joy to express and to explain to them the forgiveness that they have received in Christ. We are not actually the ones who forgive them. Remember, only God can forgive sins. We are reiterating the glorious truth of the gospel that in Christ we are made clean and we are forgiven. But that is not all that Jesus says. Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Brothers and sisters, with equal authority, When someone embraces the gospel, we say, yes, praise God, by the work of Christ, you are forgiven. But we say with equal authority to someone who rejects Christ, who walks away from the gospel, we tell them, your sins are not forgiven. You have rejected the only means of salvation available to you, and you will stand accountable to God for that You will face the wrath of a holy God because you have abandoned and turned away and refused to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus means when he says, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is abundantly clear. In 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only hope. He is the only mediator. Life or death results from either trusting in Christ or from rejecting Him. First post-resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene, relationships have changed. Second post-resurrection appearance to the disciples, continue my mission. And brothers and sisters, it is incumbent upon us to now continue that mission, to continue to proclaim life and forgiveness and joy found in Christ and in Him alone. It was Charles Spurgeon who once, who, who once wrote, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. 
And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. As we close this morning, I ask you, who will you pray for today? Who can you love for Christ's sake today? We have been called by Christ. We have been equipped and empowered by His Spirit. We stand secure at peace with God. May we be faithful to Christ's call on our life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, again, we delight to know and to read and to consider that you have brought about reconciliation because of Jesus Christ. That we stand at peace with you because of him. So, Father, we pray now in response to that, in response to all of your goodness, your grace, which you have poured out upon us, give us courage. Give us Love, give us the boldness that we need to continue the mission of Christ. Give us eyes to see those in need around us. Let us be your salt and your light in this dark time. We pray this for our joy and for your glory. It's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen.